Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. I used to uh, work in a concrete business, but that got too hard. And then they gave me a job working in a bakery because you can make a lot of dough. (laughs) <laughs> and you spend all day loafing. <laughs> so that's my future. Howdy. Welcome to another episode of the Think Theism podcast, the podcast from Rasher Christie at Texas A&M University. My name is Zach. I'm joined today with my co-host and P-Zombie hunter, Andrew Robbins. Hello there. It's the first Saturday of February, and that means that it's time for the Rasher Christie Texas Regional Meeting, and that's where we are today. Today we have a special guest. We have Glenn Smith who, as I understand, is the regional director of all the Texas chapters of uh, Russia Christie. So, Glenn, how are you doing today? Welcome. Thanks to be here. Yeah. Um, and is that correct? You are the regional director? Yes, I am the regional director for State of Texas for Rasio Christie. All right, cool. So, Rasio Christie is, um, most of the people in our audience know it as just that group that meets on Thursday, uh, but it's actually much bigger. It's a, it, it's a national organization, right? Yes, Russia Christie been around for about ten years, and it is a uh, fairly large national organization. Uh, we have uh, roughly 175 plus ch- university chapters all around the United States and and overseas, and there's other major parts of the ministry as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the folks that we know they know it mostly just for the student group meetings that happen on campus, but. Uh, what what are those other activities that, that are going out on outside of just the chapter meetings? Well, Rosho Christie, again, one major piece is the university chapters. We set up uh, these apologetic clubs at secular and, and, uh, and Christian universities to study apologetics and evangelism. So that's a major piece at the university level. That's where all the ideas collide. But we also have uh, a ministry, Rosho Christie College Prep, which is aimed at high school students. We work through parents and through churches to reach high school students. And so that's a major piece. We also have Rosho Christie Prof, which is a, an effort to reach uh, Christian professors, reach professors that at the universities, in the sense that if you win the professor, then you win his classroom for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so we believe that we've got a, a, a great message, an intellectually, academically sound message that can reach professors. Christian f- professors especially are, are uh, in a very difficult environment. And then uh, lastly, we also have a ministry that deals with large uh, events. We have, uh, you mentioned first Saturday in February, this weekend uh, at Purdue, we have a large Ratio Christi uh, symposium, Symposia Christi, mm-hmm. that uh, is all day, uh, uh, the uh, all day session that we can have with, with many, many professors. If, if somebody goes on YouTube and looks up professors as confessors, you'll see part of that. And so those are our four areas. We work with college students, high school students, professors, and at the university having large uh, symposia. And, and you said that Rasher Christie at its core actually has a solid intellectually sound message. Um, so what, what exactly is that message and, and what are the broad goals that uh, RC is trying to accomplish? The goals that Rasher Christie are accomplishing is that we, we have a point in history where the Western church has 
abandoned academically, and there's almost an almost an anti-intellectualism in Western Christianity. It's so bad it's to the point where people somehow think it's spiritual to not think through difficult issues. And so we're trying to change that in the sense that Christianity has a long history of uh, philosophy, uh, academic level writings, and we like to bring that to the forefront and have a sense that Christianity is valid, uh, it's logically valid, historically valid, uh, personally valid, and that we can deal with the Christian worldview. If it won't work in the academic level, then uh, it won't work. And so we believe we have a very solid message with a long history of academic people that can speak at, at any given field. Mm, I see. And what, what would you say is the main um, distinguishing feature that sets Rasha Christie apart from the litany of other uh, university and um, high school ministries that are out there. And and apologetic ministries. There, right. there are many good Christian apologists that are out, and I'm sure the audience knows, knows many of those names. What sets us apart is that we have meetings every week, every month, uh, on campuses, in classrooms, with small group discipleship groups. And we meet regularly, we meet at length. It gives us the chance to allow lengthy discussions about difficult issues. Oftentimes, the more well-known speakers, I mean, God bless them, we sure need those guys. And they, but they'll come in and do one night or one evening and then they're gone. And the average person may learn some things, but they, they may have an issue that didn't get talked about that night or they need some interaction. And what we found is many students really want to sit around at the coffee shop till 3 a.m. and talk about these things. And so that, that's where we, we come in. We have a trained apologist at every chapter that has a heart for students and a mind for apologetics and can spend the time. And it's been my experience that once you form these groups, then people sort of come out of the woodwork with different levels of interest and different questions. And after you've been there a couple of three months, then somebody will feel comfortable enough to now they bring out their kind of chestnut question that's been bothering them. And they won't often do it. It's in, in a church, won't often do that to a pastor. And so these meetings, these clubs, Rosho Christie allows us to have a safe place to ask difficult questions that might be bothering people. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure like many people listening, they can immediately remember those many, many nights uh, that we spend at Rev's American Grill uh, in the MSC. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, many chestnuts come up in one night um, for, for sure. Uh, so that that's, and I think that's wonderful that you know, Rasher Christie takes the the content that those speakers give in that one night lecture, and then you know stretches it out, builds a community around that, where there's consistent engagement uh, around these types of questions. Um, and where would you say that the future of Rasher Christie is? Uh, that is, how might other people actively be involved uh, in spreading this message of not just apologetics, but also building a community around uh, this type of intellectually rigorous approach to Christianity? Well, the, the future with the group is that there's a generation out there that really needs to have these discussions, that really needs 
to be introduced to these concepts. And I like to make the analogy of a college sports team. Mm -hmm. uh, every year you've got some veterans graduating and some new freshmen coming in. So the messages need to continue to be given to each, each group as they come along. Every year we have new batch of students that come in with fresh questions and fresh issues that, that, that need to be reinforced. And I, I am convinced, having worked with this ministry for nine plus years, that there's some great young talent that's going to make a huge impact on Christianity, but they're 18 years old, and they've got a lot of mental horsepower, but they just hadn't lived long enough to go through the life experiences. And that's why I'm here. That's the, it's just very fun. It's, it's a boatload of fun working with these students and seeing the great, uh, great potential that's happening. So the, the real value of what we bring to the table is we get to spend a great deal of time mentoring young talent that are going to be future leaders. I remember there's there's people that have come out of this chapter at, at, at A&M that are now missionaries on the field. And so uh, I, I get support support letters from them regularly. And so there's, there's a great potential to help a large number of people that will become the intellectual leaders of the future. And so that's where it's really going. And again, where the universities go is where the culture goes. Mm -hmm. If we can win the professors, if we can win the students, then we can shape the future. The reasons why the Western church is in some of the messes that it's in now is because the intellectuals won the day in the other direction 100, 150 years ago. And we're trying to slowly but surely turn the ship. And in order to do that, we really need good talent. We need uh, people that have a mind for apologetics and a heart for students and the, the, the time to spend on it. And if they have those three, then, then God will use them. And I, I know we, we can sure use those people. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so that, I think that's a great sketch of you know the future and what lies ahead. I'd like to actually transition now and talk a little bit about uh, what happened in the past. Um, where did your interest in apologetics come from, and, and, and where would you say that you're, I guess, burdened to uh, sure. continue this, specifically sure. A&M and, and now nationally? Well, a uh, little bit about me. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I, uh, our parents sent, sent me to church when I was a little kid, but uh, we, there was no spiritual anything at home. And by the time I was 9 or 10, I didn't want to go anymore and, and didn't. So I really knew little to nothing about Christianity uh, until I was in college, and all these ideas kept colliding, and I, I just viewed Christians as sort of perfect people that uh, didn't think very much. And I knew I had questions, was too embarrassed to ask most of them. When I was 25, my sister invited me to church, uh, nagged me really, but she, uh, I went to church with her, and the pastor who was speaking uh, had his sermons on a very intellectual level. And he answered a whole lot of questions. And through his teaching, uh, it was actually through teaching in Hebrews, that I uh, came to Christ. And immediately after that, I, I, looking back on it, I can only say it was the leading of the Holy Spirit. I, I uh, very much got interested from, from the very beginning on who's right and who's wrong and why. Mm -hmm. And there was, uh, I, I didn't ever really have a mentor in those days, there I was, a young 25-year-old baby Christian with very little knowledge of the scriptures. I immediately turned on the radio, 
And there was a couple of radio guys at the time. One of them was a guy named Vernon McGee, who did a verse-by-verse Bible study. And there was another guy on on the radio at the time named Walter Martin, who had a call-in radio show. And he would quote the Greek from memory, and he would quote original source people from cults and non-Christian groups, and he had all these answers. I never even heard the word apologetics for several years, but I saw that and said, that's what I want to do. And from just listening to Walter Martin, I knew I, you have to do your homework yeah. and you have to quote the original sources or people are not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And so this was all, uh, you know, before all the modern apologetics oh, yeah. movements and think the resources just weren't there. So the first several years, it was, it was very difficult scrounging around through university libraries and used bookstores trying to find original source materials and being self-taught uh, because a lot of the things that that are happening today just just weren't around. And so uh, then long in the early 90s, things changed. Uh, We are in now what is probably the golden age of apologetics. Mm -hmm. There's more apologetics things happening now than has ever had in in the history of the church at at one time period. And I found out that there was uh, seminaries uh, that you could learn apologetics and you could stay home and so I didn't have to quit my job and rip up my family and move cross-country. I could keep my day job and take seminary classes and study apologetics at night. And so I was doing that. I went to Southern Evangelical Seminary, put a plug for the SES out there. Yeah. And so at, I was there doing my nights and, and weekends classes, and I get this email one day that says, hey, there's this new group uh, called Rosho Christie, and they're going to study apologetics with college students. And uh, what had happened was there were two or three uh, SES students that were working with college students in the Carolinas. And somebody said, hey, let's put up a website. And, uh, and they spent $25, put up a website. And some people from A&M had found that website. And so I get this email saying, hey, there's these students at A&M that want to talk about apologetics. And I jumped on it. I mean, I would have paid to do it. Uh, because it, what more could you ask for but uh, talk to uh, young people that full of energy and uh, full of ideas, and the universities are where all the ideas collide. And uh, so that, that's how I got started. I see. And, and so then you and I know what happened here at, at right. A&M uh, for a while. Those, those were some really uh, uh, great years. And then uh, you abandoned us um, to... I was, the, I was the chapter director here for four years, <laughs> and the movement, the ministry, was growing so quickly that I got a call from National one day and said, hey, everything's growing so quickly, we really need somebody to help grow the other chapters. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to back out of A&M a little bit and become a regional director. And I said, sure, what's a regional director? <laughs> and so they said, well, we just need somebody to talk to new potential chapter directors, give advice to the other chapters on how to grow, things like that. So that, that's what I do. I spend my time on the phone and sending emails and explaining how chapter meetings should go and trying to recruit new, uh, new chapter directors. I see. And so are you over just the chapters in Texas or does that Texas. region? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm in Texas. I see. Are there any exciting new Are chapters? there any other places that are <laughs> equally important? Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't think so either. Maybe Jerusalem, but I don't know. Possibly. <laughs> um, so are there any exciting new developments in, in, in Texas? Any new chapters that we should be looking for or any uh, general activity that uh, is coming up? 
Well, there's 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 always some fun stuff going around. Uh, there always seems to be uh, uh, interest from new chapters. What where I really get where I get interested are, are ones that are in schools that are have a liberal leaning. Liberal. I'm not talking about social liberal, but theological liberal. And I always have to remind that I'm not talking about politics right. here. It's it has to do with how we view the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's worldviews out there and those are the chapters that that I uh, tend to get most interested in or the ones that have a, a large degree of influence and might not have the same cultural mindset that happens they at a Texas A&M. And so th- those are the interesting ones to me. Now I can mention there's there's a few things. Rasha Christie owns three at this point Torah scrolls oh, okay. that are quite fascinating. These are uh, Torah scrolls, the first five books of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and these are Jewish created documents by trained scribes on animal skins. There's a they're they're done the same way they've been done for three thousand years. And Rasha Christie as a ministry has these available, and they're, they're wonderful outreach techniques simply because, like, for example, one of them made it through the Holocaust hmm. in Nazi Germany when there was, if you remember your history, Kristallnacht was a time where the Nazi thugs were burning bre- uh, Jewish synagogues and burning Jewish businesses and breaking glass. So Kristallnacht was the night of broken glass. Hmm. And there were stories of young men rushing into synagogues and that are on fire and throwing the scrolls out the window to uh, people waiting outside, and they rushed them into the forest to hide them, things like that. So they they were they col- the Nazis collected as many Jewish writings as they could and burned them in the streets. Mm. And so we have one scroll that was smuggled mm. through Nazi Germany. And so the great outreach technique is that we can advertise. Hey, come see the part of history. You know, this is history, handwritten, animal skins, 90-foot-long scroll. And we then give a presentation around copy techniques Mm -hmm. because the copy techniques uh, have protected this document for over 3,000 years. And they know, for example, the scribes know that there are 304 1,805 characters Mm -hmm. in the Torah, and they know when if there's even one missing. Mm -hmm. And so we can give an apologetic lesson on copying techniques in the Old Testament. Yeah, I I was actually recently reading a book on um, a guide to textual criticism, and one of the comments in there that the author made was, Old Testament textual criticism and New Testament textual criticism are so different. Yes. Primarily because the Old Testament has such little variation in it yes. that you almost have to, it's almost an art trying to figure out is there really a difference between these two different texts? Because there could be like a copying error, but it's so well preserved that there's almost no way that you, you can. Yes, tell. the Old Testament uh, was protected and, and continued through professional scribes that dedicated their lives, and they got very, very, very particular. Uh, just to give one one example, the the Jewish scribes from Yemen mm-hmm. were physically separated from the scribes in the other parts of Europe. And one of the techniques that they the scribes in Yemen did was they put they took a sharp pointed instrument and they would put a little indention, no ink, just a little indention, little dot with a pointed tool at various places between the words. 
And later, time goes by, the Yemeni scrolls got merged back into Israel. And the scribes from Israel, wait a minute, these have been separated. We can't, unless we check these out, Mm -hmm. we can't accept them back in. So they went through 304,805 characters. They found nine characters that had been uh, different from the original, and they got into lengthy arguments about these little points (laughs) that had been made with this sharp instrument about whether that was allowed. You were doing something different. I don't know about this. And so they're they're very uh, unique in that sense, in that sense they're professional scribes that dedicated their lives. Over in the New Testament, you have things that were done, again, Christianity was illegal for hundreds of years in Rome, and you had churches that may have had a letter from Paul, and, well, we, we need to copy this and send it to the other churches, so you had non-professional people that was doing it. And so you'll end up in the New Testament with things like two words that sound alike, right. but are you know spelled differently, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you went to SES yes. uh, or, you know, um, through there. Um, a dirty secret about SES that I hear is that it is a temple to, to a mystic philosophy. Is, is this true? Uh, SES has, was influenced by, and early on, by Norman Geisler. Mm-hmm. Uh, is no longer teaching there, so his influence is, is, is not so strong that it was... Uh, that it's uh, carried into today necessarily, but one of the one of the things that SES has is it has as one of its characteristics the f- philosophies of Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. and SES uh, Thomas Aquinas lived in the 1200s, and he I- introduced a lot of uh, concepts that align with how, say, how God's nature is and how uh, the nature of man interacts. Aquinas wrote at length and uh, hundreds of volumes. And he, um, SES takes that and marries good, solid Christian theology with Thomistic philosophy. And people a lot of times get you mentioned the word philosophy, people mm. get kind of scared. Here, here's really all it is. Boil it down to a nutshell. Thomistic philosophy, if you boil it down to a simple explanation, is this. When we have things, do, like for example, a human. Mm-hmm. A human has a soul and a spirit. Okay, How do you explain that? Is the soul and the body and the spirit combined into one thing? Or is it uh, separate things? And why? And so you can say, okay, you're forced into one or two or three different uh, uh, explanations. You can either say, I'm not going to think about that. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, and I'm not going to think about it. Or you're going to say that, well, the soul and the body are separate, or you're going to say that the soul and the body are unified. Mm -hmm. But whatever you do, you have to at least deal with the question, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's one, as Thomistic philosophy says, we need to think through these questions. And then the, one of the second other pillars of, of, uh, of this type of view is we, we start with things in the world, mm. such as a created world, and we can reason from there. Romans 1.20 says that even a lost person can look at the universe and tell some things about God's invisible nature. And so that's all Thomism would do is it says that there's a real world out there, 
They would disagree with the Buddhists, and mm-hmm. the Buddhists often say the real world doesn't exist. And again, what do you do if you're going to witness to a Buddhist? You have to deal with these issues. And so Thomism would say the real world exists. We can look at the real world, a la Romans 1.20, and, and say something must have made this. Mm. And that we can know that God exists from looking at the real world. We can't know his special revelation. We have to have the Bible. But we can know some things about God by just looking at the world, and, and we can reason from there. Right. And uh, Aquinas had a very famous blog post called uh, Top Five Reasons That God Exists, is what I hear. In, in uh, Aquinas had, a again, a very lengthy systematic theology text, and in that he had uh, five uh, explanations for the existence of God, mm-hmm. and that's used and often misunderstood, by the way, mm-hmm. in a lot of introductory philosophy classes. Now, in that long list of things that Aquinas wrote about, I'm sure that one of those questions, as always comes up, is what do we do with the interaction of God and man, namely the freedom of one or two of those uh, entities? Right, right. And one of the, that's one of the things I've always been kind of fascinated with, and I'll, I'll uh, if, if I can, take a second here and branch off into a couple of questions. Uh, I've always been interested in uh, what point does God cause things, and at what point do humans cause things? And there's different branches of theology, Calvinism and Arminianism, that sort of wrestle with these mm-hmm. these questions, and I've always been interested in that. And I'll throw out a couple of just people that might get uh, turned away by the heavy theology. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll quote a couple of passages to you to kind of get you interested in this. If you if you look at the book of Acts, chapter two, this is of course where the Holy Spirit was first introduced, and then Peter goes into a sermon, mm-hmm. and he's in Jerusalem on on day of Pentecost giving this sermon to the Jewish leaders. And one of the things he says, this is Peter talking in Acts 2, verse 23, and he's speaking about Christ, and he's speaking to these Jewish leaders that just days before had uh, killed Jesus Christ. And Acts 2, 23, him, he's talking about Jesus, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, having crucified and put to death. So in that verse, we have the determined uh, counsel and foreknowledge of God had a plan for Jesus Christ to be crucified. It was God's plan from the very beginning to crucify Christ. And he says it right here, delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. So it was God's plan from the very beginning to crucify Christ. But then he says in the same verse, you did it. Mm-hmm. You did it. You killed him. Okay. And so that, so to me, is always is... sort of fascinated. Another one along these lines is if you look in, in Matthew chapter 16, there's a passage there where, uh, of course, he's talking to Peter. This is Jesus talking to Peter. And he talks about uh, who, do you, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, well, well, some say this, some say that. We say, who do you say that I am? And Peter's got this famous quote where he says, you're the Christ. And uh, then 
then Jesus talks about the keys, and there's this debate about the keys. But he has a <laughs> just a small issue, just a small <laughs> issue about the keys. Right. Uh, right after that, very interesting little verse where he uh, Jesus is speaking again, and in Matthew 16. Uh, verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts talking about binding and loosing, okay? And the only real English translation that gets the verb tenses the best is the New American Standard. In the original Greek, what Jesus is actually saying here is that, Peter, there will come a day, a future day, when you are going to bind something or loose something. Now, whatever binding and loosing means is not the point here. But what he's saying, Peter, you, Peter, you will, in a future day, future tense verb, you will bind something and loose something. And when you do that, when, Peter, you make this decision to bind something and loose it, you will find that it has already been bound, past tense, in heaven. Interesting. And so I, f I just find that fascinating. Now, if you go to the philosophers on, on this is called compatibilism, mm -hmm. and it gets sort of a bad view these days amongst Com philosophers in explaining how all this works. Mm -hmm. uh, compatibilism would say that uh, God has determined something, and then your free will compatibly works along with that. Oh. And so, there, so there are indeed problem, philosophical issues on how to explain that. So what that's saying is that whatever we mean by free will and whatever we mean by determinism, those things are they're compatible with each other. Correct. Right. And that would be in distinction to people that say whatever we mean by free will, it can't be determined. Is, is, am I understanding that correctly? Well, that it's, it, a lot of people would say it's either things are determined or you have free will. Oh, okay. And that's what a lot of people would say. Either, either somebody has a free will to choose what they're going to happen today, or it's already been determined and it's sort of a fatalistic view. But they, 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 those two views would be incompatible, okay. whereas compatibilism would say they don't necessarily have to be. And I, I don't necessarily claim I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. but I just find these passages here that seem to indicate from a biblical standpoint uh, that compatibilism is, is at least partially true. And... If people struggle with this, here, here would be my response. The God is infinite, we're finite, mm -hmm. and the finite will never understand the infinite. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. One last little plug for Rosh sure. Christie. We could sure use good, talented people to plug into our chapters. If anybody is interested in apologetics at all, even if you're not uh, necessarily well-trained, if you have any interest at all, and you have an interest in working around universities or with young people at all, come see us, we'd we sure use you. All right, cool. Uh, any place that people could reach out to you? Any blog sites? Uh, just find, find our website, uh, r-a-t-i-o-c-h-r-i-s-t-i.org, and you'll find our, our ministry. Cool. Glenn, thanks again so much for your time. Sure. Glad to be here.